0: Racism, 1963.
1: We do not want our freedom gradually,
0: but we want to be free now.
1: I have a dream. My four little children, one day
2: live in a nation where they will not be judged by the color of their skin, but by the content of their character. I have a dream.
0: Join Frank Falvey and our round table of regulars, higher education consultant, Dr. Michael Walker-Jones, Harvard's executive director for Health and Human Services, Dr. Natalie Alinos, and from Beacon Hill, Representative Jeff Roy, as we the people navigate the unique journey of America toward a more perfect union. Racism, 2021.
3: I started to have Confidence issues where I believe that I had to be white to be pretty and the only times that I was complimented it was things like oh you're you're pretty for a black girl as if I can't be pretty because of the color of my skin I would have like panic attacks in the school bathroom because I like sorry I would just constantly compare myself to every white girl. And so when people call, like, the Black Lives Matter movement a terrorist organization, it really hurts me because it was that movement that made me finally embrace my Blackness and love myself.
1: Hello, this is Frank Valvey, your host, for A Journey to a More Perfect Union. And this morning, we have our normal panel with us. We have PJ. Hey. We have Representative Jeff Roy. We have Dr. Walker-Jones in those wonderful sunglasses. Good morning. We have have Natalie Linus with us. Good morning, Uh, Good morning. And this morning, we have a number of uh, special guests that I would like to introduce. Where students are, are our most important priority, here is, first, Angelina Perez. What year are you in, Angelina?
4: I'm a senior. Welcome. Thank and
1: you. someone needs to help me. Nume. <laughs>
3: yes.
1: <laughs> Welcome and good morning. And and what year are you in?
3: I'm also a senior as well. Welcome. Thank you.
1: We go to uh, Dr. Sarah Ahern, the superintendent of Franklin Schools, and an assistant superintendent, Lucas Jigia. And from the school committee, we have Denise Spencer. Kobe Frangello is on the uh, new member of the Franklin Town Council uh, and uh, was on the previous program. Uh, Welcome, Kobe. Thank you. It's good to be back. PJ, could you give us kind of a recap of who was on and and what our first program on this subject was about?
0: Uh, Well, obviously, in tackling racism, one of the things we talked about the last time was uh, the fact that, yes, it continues. It is both pernicious and enduring, unfortunately, and still remains with us. But in a guise, oftentimes, of something that is less obvious. When we were speaking the last time, one of the things that was, was certainly made clear, and, and we've done other programs on racism, You know, thanks to Kobe and, and our other participants this morning who are revisiting us from that program. We talked about the fact that there is this separation of of standards. There is this notion of, uh, as one uh, student commented, oh, you're pretty for a black girl. That damning prepositional phrase is horrific. And I had mentioned at the time that a backhanded compliment, although meant as a compliment, is still nothing more than a gift-wrapped insult with a bow on top. Uh, And sometimes... People are just insensitive to that. And what we really need to do now in order to achieve race parity, embracing each other, not necessarily just tolerating each other, but celebrating everything that is unique about us, uh, how we do that really requires a new mindset. And that's what we were talking about the last time. On the legislative front and in the ballot box, I had mentioned the fact that I really like the phrase Black Lives Matter, but coming up in the next two to four years, Black votes matter. We need a call to action. We need to do something. And even reaching beyond the Black community, to Latino Latinx community, to AAPI, there are so many people who are at this point being denigrated, disenfranchised, diminished, reduced. And it's a sadness that has risen in the last four years. And that sadness needs to be confronted and eradicated. With that, Frank, I open the floor. Well, let me uh, also add to that, too, that one of the sparkling
2: incidences of our last meeting was the, all of us, I think, viewed a video that was made back in November uh, by Franklin High School students, uh, giving some background in terms of some of the sort of racial uh, situations and epics that they had experienced while students at Franklin, some of them went back, uh, some of the students went back to their Elementary as well as middle school days. Uh, And much of that was troubling. And part of what I guess I'm really interested in is at this point hearing from the school district, because the students, I think, were very powerful in their presentation. And a couple of things did happen. And I'd like to give uh, uh, Sarah, the superintendent, an opportunity to sort of describe for us what are some of the things that, based upon the students' concerns, that the school district has done uh, to try to address some of those concerns.
5: Sure, thank you, uh, Dr. Walker-Jones, happy to be here. Thank you so much for uh, having us um, be able to share the work that we're doing and really invested in, uh, in support of each and every student in Franklin. The video that you are talking about, we found to be incredibly powerful. And I remember um, the first time seeing it, And there was kind of a coincidence of opportunities happening where we were doing a professional development series for our faculty and staff this year around addressing and interrupting microaggressions. We started the year asking our faculty and staff to make the time and make it a point to get to know each and every child in their class. And... Uh, learn more about who they are, and then uh, in December we were following up with a uh, professional development experience um, to point out some microaggressions that, uh, with some materials that we had uh, that students were experiencing in other communities and asking our uh, educators to reflect on what they think is uh, happening in Franklin. And right around that same time, uh, the video was in development and, um, and by February, when we had our third and final professional development series on uh, speaking up uh, to interrupt microaggressions, uh, the video had been released and became, I think a powerful uh, learning tool And uh, by the time uh, the the video was released, um, we had also had an opportunity and a a real pleasure, um, Mr. Hanna, the high school principal, and I to meet with uh, Noombe and Angelina and other members of the Diversity Awareness Club at Franklin High School to listen um, more directly and firsthand uh, and to expand the conversation Um, in advance of our professional development day in February. And so uh, the video has been viewed by many educators uh, in the Franklin public schools. I know that the school committee has has watched it. Um, I know that our elected officials have seen it. And uh, to the point that was made in the last radio show, um, it really does uh, highlight and point out uh, the the racism and the experiences that our students are having uh, in our in our community, both in the schools and elsewhere in Franklin, and uh, I think more than anything points out that it, it can't be ignored. Um, we can't pretend like it's not happening. And so, um, you know, what are what are we doing as a community uh, to support uh, to support our students uh, and our families?
6: Now I want to uh, jump in and uh, just bring up that since our last show we had an incident that arose out in Duxbury uh, where they were using some careless language that uh, you know really exposed uh, some you know ethnic hatred in uh, you know that's part of common parlance and it was it it was shocking uh, to hear it and uh, there's been a renewed conversation uh, about you know how do we get the message to folks? Just um, you know how to how to approach this? And uh, you know one of the things that uh, we are looking for, and I know I've spoken about it on this uh, show previously, is a is a um, curriculum in genocide education. A lot of school districts, and I know Franklin already has it in the in the curriculum, but it's. You know, we need to give uh, students an opportunity to explore how stereotypes, prejudice, and religious and ethnic hatred uh, can escalate. You know, uh, sometimes it can escalate to atrocity. And, you know, having these types of discussions, and and I'm so thrilled that, uh, you know, we have both students and administrators and school committee represented here today to engage in this conversation about how to truly deliver humane uh, information so that students recognize the good and the bad and how words matter and uh, you know what we can do to make this a, uh, a safe space for everyone, but also a comfortable space for us all to um, exist. You know one of the things that that
2: i'm I'm quite concerned about is that uh, I know it's difficult to have uh, conversations about race in a town that's overwhelmingly white. I know there were some studies that uh, or at, at least a piece of research and reporting out of Worcester County where the majority of the schools in Worcester County are overwhelmingly white, and that the the incidences of concern over Uh, what I would call racial epics or mistreatment uh, is also overwhelming. So it's not something new here in Franklin. And I must admit that my concern is that living in Franklin as a resident and as a parent who raised my kids here, my concern is that once we recognize that these things are happening, uh, that we do something. And, And Jeff, let me push back just a little bit because I think it goes deeper than just a course dealing with, for example, uh, genocide. Genocide is a human condition. It is not something that's unique to either one population or one era. So I guess I throw this out to Lucas. Uh, you know, when you look at the curriculum, uh, many of the things that we're concerned about are actually or should be a part of the regular cu- uh, curriculum. We shouldn't have to add on things in order to address historical uh, historical events, that have happened and that we have documented and that we have the ability to teach from all segments of society. Uh, so what are we doing there? I mean, you know, it seems to me that rather than add on to make students think that this is something unique, how are we doing about integrating all of these kinds of concerns into our regular curriculum?
6: Wait, just before Lucas jumps in, I just wanna um, make it clear that the legislation does not call for a course. It, it it calls for the incorporation of genocide education throughout the curriculum, and uh, I just want to make sure that everybody understands where where we're headed. And I that's think, a great uh, distinction, my friend. Yeah. So, so Lucas, uh, sure. you can dive in because I think you're going to cover exactly uh, how you're doing it in the curriculum throughout the system.
7: And I'm I'm part of a, a part of a group of people that that are working towards these efforts, I would point to two things. There's curriculum, and to your point, Michael, around integrating into our curriculum as not an additional piece, but kind of weaving it into the work that we do with students. So there's two pieces that I can speak to. One, um, I'd like to talk a little bit about social emotional learning. I know we use that word and we hear SEL used a lot, and that's not an intervention, um, but really a systemic approach to helping kids understand and build competencies in the variety of areas that hit on this, what Castle has done recently is what they've called uh, their equity elaborations. So we've in Franklin committed to educating our students and our teachers on the five competencies for Castle, right around self-management, self-awareness, relationship skills. I think you're familiar with
1: um, with some of these these tenants. L- what Lucas, they, yes, I, I, many of our listeners don't know what you just said at the beginning and introducing, you, you assumed that everyone knew. Could you just tell us a little more what that sure. is?
7: Sure. So in Franklin, um, we've adopted for the social-emotional learning curriculum, we've adopted what's called the CASEL framework. And within that, CASEL is uh, the acronym for the Center for Academic, Social, and Emotional Learning. And basically, they have five competencies in which they feel as though every human, so it's not just kids, but it's adults through adulthood. I think I'm still working on some of these competencies as well, I'll admit, um, around self-awareness and self-management, responsible decision-making, then it gets into relationship skills and social awareness. So what this, this group, castle has done is we've had these in Franklin. We've provided and dedicated training. Teachers are, are, are diving in on this work to really help kids in parallel our curriculum. And I'll speak to that curriculum piece in a second. Um, with that, what recently has happened through an equity social justice lens, they're developing a curriculum. So we already have these pieces in place as we work and continue to deepen our work with teachers. It's how can we now pull in, use the system that we have in place to kind of deepen that work and have kids start to examine um, their self-awareness, start to examine their own identity, right? thinking about social awareness. How do I understand and how can I uh, take perspective of other people's identity and try to work through some of these pieces and it builds pre-K through 12 um, in that regard. As far as the curriculum, there's a few things and I'm thinking back to last week when um, Kobe, when you hosted the event where Senator Spilka spoke at the police reform night, she talked about sprints and marathons and I thought that was a good analogy because there's a lot of work that we can be doing that doesn't require necessarily multiple days of PD. They're just decisions we need to make to make our schools uh, better and help students. How we celebrate holidays, what narratives we put out. We did work around, I use Thanksgiving as an example. Um, You know, what perspective are we taking when we talk about Thanksgiving, for example? Um, And you could apply that to other holidays. I think we our goal this year is to really start to formulate in our in our action plan. And the DEI committees met and Sarah, I think we'll talk to that, um, is really try to look at what are the sprint moves that we can do immediately, and then what are more of the long-term goals. And my final comment would just be around the curriculum, creating some curriculum review cycles that actually have an intentional lens around um, racial and social justice, equity, bias within the curriculum, and not as a compliance like check the box. But to really look, does the curriculum, um, and we've had our students talk about this, are our students reflected in the curriculum? Are we offering narratives and books that reflect students in, in, in a variety of different lights and ways? I'm thinking at the elementary level. And as you move up, there is there are courses that, um, that we do have at Franklin High. And I think uh, to that point, it's not just a single isolated course. I think it's the system and it's not um, just sold to, to one piece. But I think it's an integration.
8: I want to jump in here and sort of say this is really wonderful to hear this intentionality behind the curriculum development and and really uh, focusing on social-emotional learning. I do, my one concern, and I'm a social epidemiologist who thinks about structural racism and health, is that the structural piece, like we're thinking about individuals teaching, individual growth and change, but what about the structures? You know, what is it in our school systems what does your faculty look like? What does your senior leadership look like? What time do you hold meetings? What time do, you know, are students who may be students of color and families that have multiple jobs, are they able to participate in those events? How can we think about not just the curriculum, but just how we are set up as an institution. Do you have police in your schools? And I'm I'm bringing these to the conversation because I live in Brookline and we are having these conversations right now to remove um, sort of police presence from schools, even though the person there is wonderful, but to think about the structures and, and, you know, does a school need that sort of structure and to think about, uh, you know, we're really lucky in Brookline to have our new superintendent be a black man, but that's the first uh, person of color in the history, I think, of Brookline. So I think in parallel to the conversation around curricula, we need to be thinking about Franklin as a community and and the school and the education system within the broader community structures and and how do they come um, and interact with each other? So it's it's exciting, but also like you know, do student voices matter uh, here in Brooklyn? Also, the students petitioned to have the Lunar New Year as a recognized you know holiday, and it was the first year this year that we celebrated it, and it was a student initiative. So. I'd love to think through a little bit of those dynamics, power, you know, when we talk about racism, it's, it's a power issue and a
2: structure issue too. And let me uh, pile on <laughs> with, with that one too, because part of my concern is a historical one. I mean, my, my daughter has graduated in 20, uh, 2009 and 2010 respectively. And so we're talking 10 years ago from their early career in Franklin as students from elementary school to high school, they had the same experiences as, uh, as the students who we heard in the video and in our last broadcast. So uh, let me pile on and say, okay, you know, we've had these kinds of, of awakenings before. So Lucas and Sarah, I want to sort of, you know, push you a little bit and say, we're already in the marathon. This is not something new. This is not a matter of, you know, so so now we're looking for what's that push in terms of the spread now to make some of these changes and then systemically make sure that they don't erode over time or that we have to keep going through this
5: every 10 years. So I'll jump in and talk a bit about the um, committee that we've put together, because I think that um, this is, you know, when you talk about the system, it's a matter of bringing together as many people as possible from a variety of different roles to make those changes. And so we have established a diversity, equity, and inclusion committee. There's about 60 people, which I am um, just thrilled with. Uh, in terms of the number of educators, uh, the number of students, um, as well as other roles in the school system who have come together to support change uh, around diversity, equity and inclusion. Um, In addition to administrators and teachers, we have um, paraprofessionals um, who are representing uh, on the committee. We have a secretarial representative, which we thought was important because um, our front offices and our secretaries are often the first introduction that people have to our school system. And so we want to be sure that we are putting um, the most welcoming you know, kind of environment forward uh, as, a, as an initial introduction. And then we have um, school committee representation as well. Um, And we see the diversity equity and inclusion committee as one that will uh, have liaisons out into the community. So certainly school committee represents um, a group that is an important liaison and representative of the community. And uh, I am um, really pleased uh, and honored to be part of the Franklin Freedom team that I know was talked about at the last meeting. Uh, as, a, as the school superintendent and school representative, as we talk about making change and, and having an influence um, across the broader community when, um, when incidents of bias happen. And for me, uh, just speaking about the Franklin Freedom Team, I welcome the support. Um, the schools don't exist in isolation. We are not a silo. And uh, we have a tremendous platform and a tremendous responsibility as educators. Um, but I do appreciate the support of others in the community Uh, in terms of uh, responding uh, to incidents of bias, um, both reactively and proactively through that group. So I really welcome, uh, I really welcome and look forward to those meetings and uh, opportunities to connect. The Diversity, Equity and Inclusion Committee is doing the sprint and marathon at the same time. Um, We have spent the first couple of meetings, of course, with 60 people from from varying backgrounds uh, and roles, kind of norming and making sure that we're Uh, kind of adhering to to certain commitments to each other around um, behaviors about how we're going to engage in the work, because as you said, it can be hard to engage in these conversations. And uh, to me, I believe that that's a skill and one that we should be um, honing and developing and practicing. Uh, And so uh, we have some norms uh, that we've agreed to like any team you go from norms to storming and so there's been uh, some incredible brainstorming about actions that we can and should be taking in the area of uh, curriculum school culture professional development school policies and practices and our communication we have over a hundred items and so we are in the process of uh, developing some priorities some of those priorities, because uh, we can't do everything all at once. Um, so we're setting some priorities uh, based on things that would have high impact but are relatively low effort um, in the in the current moment setting some priorities about things that are time, time sensitive or time bound that can be, make some systemic change. And for example, right now, we're heading into the hiring season. So what are things that we can put into place right now to uh, improve our messaging and our um, recruitment of uh, a more diverse educational workforce? Uh, we are in the process uh, or leading up to handbook reviews, which we typically do in the summer for the fall. And so, looking at our handbooks from a new lens is a, is a kind of a higher priority from a from a time perspective. And then um, we also know that there are some things that are going to that are I think more deeply rooted that are going to take some longer time. And setting up some action steps for uh, the long term. And one example of that would be like uh, Lucas was talking about with our curriculum review developing a uh, regular predictable content area curriculum review by which uh, diversity, equity, and inclusion is considered. We um, are also in the budget season. This is separate from the diversity, equity, and inclusion committee, but certainly uh, the Uh, conversations we have do uh, influence uh, the budget proposal. So the school committee is currently considering its budget for FY22, and there are um, some some areas there that are certainly supportive of this work. One is the ongoing support of the diversity, equity, and inclusion committee to support its work next year. Uh, I've proposed uh, a diversity, equity, and inclusion audit um, which would be um, kind of an external review so that I think sometimes when we're self-reflection is really, really important, and I think it's important to do that, but we can also serve as our own echo chamber, so having uh, some external uh, support to take, a look at, to take a look at our outcomes, uh, both from a quantitative and qualitative perspective can help us prioritize as well for the long term. And then uh, in the area of instructional materials and resources, we are um, making sure to uh, allocate funds towards more diverse literature, for example, for our elementary schools, as well as supporting um, the the courses that that we think are most important um, to to be supporting that are um, consistent with a diversity, equity, and inclusion lens. Um, so those are some of the things uh, that are happening. Um, the Diversity, Equity, and Inclusion Committee is going to continue to meet for the rest of this year. And like I said, we do have plans for its continuation uh, next year.
9: Yeah, well, I mentioned last program that as I was listening to the students, we had this conversation with students who sparked a, a lot of this. And as I was listening to them, uh, the areas for improvement came down into what I put as, as four uh, main groups. One was education, the actual curriculum, how we're teaching students, as well as uh, education just in the home, right, viewing parents as primary educators, and, and how do we talk about diversity within home. Uh, another was uh, representation, and this is something that um, w- was just being uh, alluded to, but how do we have leadership uh, and, and people that uh, and, and role models for students uh, that look like themselves, that understand what they've been through, that have some uh, diversity that they can uh, internally share. Uh, another is just conversation, right, that this felt like a new uh, platform to be able to converse publicly and and talk about these things in, in a safe space. And so I think the Franklin Freedom team has been huge uh, in, in um, starting to Uh, allow for that more regular conversation, as well as what we're trying to do with our community conversations, which we just had our first one on police reform uh, last week. And and the final was uh, response. And when instances come up, are we uh, properly responding to them? Uh, Being critical about our own uh, response mechanisms. I I think Nume and Angelina, you might have uh, some thoughts on, on anywhere uh, within those four, that seems like a proper uh, framing that we took away from those conversations.
3: First of all, thank you so much for having me um, on here. This is pretty cool. Um, I love how I've gotten so many opportunities to speak about things like this because years ago I would have been just knowing I'd be able to speak out about um, these issues. But first of all, Kobe, I just wanted to mention that when you had brought in the fact that education uh, is a priority in terms of uh, you know the curriculum and things like that, and so is uh, leadership. I do want to say from my personal opinion, I don't think we should uh, put in diversity for the sake of diversity. We do have to prioritize all kids. Um, we need to make sure that they're getting you know, the proper education they need. We need to make sure that they are understanding what they are learning as well. So it'd be important to not only have a, a person that is represented, a, a person of color maybe, but also make sure that they can do their job well. I do think it's important to have representation. Representation does matter, but at the same time, we need to make sure that the kids in the building are receiving the, the proper education they need and with the proper staff. Um, that, might, that may not be with diversity, But if possible, um, it would be good to have uh, some some diversity included
4: in that. I definitely agree with Nimbe with that. Having diversity, having someone that looks like you and you can relate to is really important, especially for like young students. And just having like those important conversations, like whether it's in the school or if it's outside of the classroom, um, whatever it may be that goes a long way, especially like youth-led discussions and having conversations in clubs such as like Nimbay's club and my club. I also think that like bias with administrators is extremely important with addressing that because with my experience in the Franklin Public Schools, I felt that I was treated very differently compared to other students that were maybe had more money or were white and Um, administrators really looked down on me and assumed that I didn't want to succeed. They wouldn't let me take certain classes, but they automatically assumed that other students that that they could handle those classes that, oh, like, yeah, you're white. You can be in that AP class, but Angelina, I don't, I don't know if that's for you. That's kind of like a reach for you. So I was put like in the lowest math class I remember, and I liked math, and I didn't, understand why I was placed in that class and so I my sophomore year of high school I had to double up in math and take two math classes to be in the placement that I wanted to be in I had to also take a a higher level of Spanish and I also remember in um I wanted to take an AP science class and my teacher told me no and I took it anyways and I ended with an A so just stuff like that, the bias of teachers and administrators, it really affects us students and our well-being, and being told that you're not good enough or that you can't do that really had has had a major effect on me, and I didn't really realize it until recently.
6: First of all, I, I want to uh, applaud the leadership of the school system in, in Dr. Ahern and in uh, Lucas and and Denise from the school committee coming on and participating in a challenging conversation. I I have to imagine uh, listening to some of the comments here is is difficult, but the fact that you're engaged in a difficult conversation speaks volumes to your your leadership. And and Sarah, I've been following you since you uh, came to Franklin and have been incredibly impressed by your ability to take on these challenges and uh, look at issues head-on and develop a, a process to address them, and I was, you know, listening to you describe the efforts that you've taken in the diversity and inclusion space, and I and I want to applaud you for that because you know not many people would would take that on head-on and do and dive into it and do what you're doing, and uh, and I'm so impressed with. Uh, Numbe and Angelina coming on and having the courage to share what has to be incredibly personal experiences, and I, I, I guess say, speak truth to power, but uh, understand that those who are in power and who are making these decisions have your back, and they want to uh, improve the system, and that should not go understated, and uh, you know that's the beauty of this program is that we have these discussions, because where are we headed, Pete? Towards a more perfect union.
2: You know, and I'd like to say too that it's important to get this message, not just amongst us who are here, the administrators and the students who are courageous enough to come forward. And I agree with you, Jeff, speak truth to power. But this message also has to get back to both those parents of students of color and to parents of, uh, of kids who are not of color. This conversation is one that can only be addressed when the entire community is engaged. And I will say to Sarah and uh, Lucas, I'm impressed that you're bringing together a very diverse group of 60 people in order to try to take uh, uh, take on these kinds of issues in the community. And I, uh, and not only that, but in my recollection of the last 30 years, I think this is that is a first. So that in and of itself says that okay, maybe we're making some progress now. The other part of that is the recognition that one of the things that we're not speaking about, and I hope that uh, uh, Noon and, Bay and Angelina can address this, the family, the impact of what happened to Angelina uh, and to uh, Noon Bay, on the family is also extremely important. And the school district has to recognize that, uh, for example, we had one of the students who said that, uh, uh, and I think she's uh, uh, East Indian, Southeast Asian ethnicity, and in her culture to have a book hit the floor, uh, you know, requires a certain uh, sanctification or, uh, or religious acknowledgement that that book, which is sacred in her culture, Uh, You know, has to be re-sanctified. And students who were then, not only once they recognized that, but started to bully her. uh, And in some instances, uh, in my mind, started to assault her by continually doing it, taking the books, throwing them on the floor, knowing that she would have to go through that particular ritual every time she picked up a book. I think it's important for the community to recognize, not just that instance, and to have something happen to that student, but also for all of the parents to recognize, we're not gonna tolerate this. We are not gonna tolerate this kind of bullying and this kind of racial denigration of any of our students. Uh, And maybe, uh, Denise, you and some of the others and the students, too, if you can address, you you know, how are we setting up, not only be, you know, the rules, uh, addressing the behaviors of students to the point where everyone knows, and especially the parents, because they need to know that the school district has their back, too, that uh, that these things are not going to be tolerated in Franklin. Can some of you guys address that, please?
5: I'll I'll kick us off, and then I think Lucas can fill in some additional details. Um, But when I have heard uh, the stories from students, whether it's from the video or from the first radio broadcast uh, on this, whether it was the first or most recent radio broadcast on this topic or um, other conversations that I've had, what I've noticed is, uh, I think, an incredible disconnect. um, Because what I see, and I think one of the the reasons why our administrators, were uh, so concerned about the um, the video and what they had heard was the feeling uh, that is very clear among students and then by extension families, that nothing happened, that uh, incidents came to their attention and nothing happened. And um, when, when I started here in Franklin, we um, had three incidents of swastikas being drawn on our school buildings. And we're in a position of doing some um, doing some response. And we developed a protocol based on what was then teaching for tolerance, but now is learning for justice, uh, responding to incidents of hate and bias. And so we developed a a protocol around uh, investigating and responding to to incidents. And so the administrators, when they do have a complaint, are doing a a tremendous amount of work to investigate. But um, there's a disconnect and and a, and a call to action, I think, on our part around the, the second component, which I think is healing and uh, making sure that there's a feeling and a sense of justice that happened on the part of students and families. Um, and Lucas has been doing some work with our administrative team along those lines, so I'll uh, turn it over to you.
7: Just on a personal and professional level to hear um, some of those students' stories and examples from this podcast, from the video, it's it was heartbreaking because, You don't get into this field and you don't get into these leadership positions to have a student have that experience. When I think about the approaches we've taken, you know, we've come from a place of responding to to these incidents from from a compliance factor and investigating and doing a thorough job of how we interview witnesses and determinations. And we've worked with our attorneys. And what's clear to me is for all the work and the difficult conversations with the aggressors in these situations and families, the victims are often felt, uh, are left feeling either like nothing's been done or there's been no, no clear messaging. So where is, and then the, the trick, the, the piece here, what we're really trying to examine is, one, we need to be incorporating more restorative justice practices into our, um, into our work, but also before there's an incident, what type of pre-teaching are we doing to kids across the board, K to 12, around this work? And I think that's the scope of this conversation And the scope of our community, to be quite frank, is, you know, I I hear some of the examples that were shared, I don't think some of those ideas were independently thought up by a 12-year-old in that moment, but in a larger context, I've heard those types of comments. So I think we have work to do, and we take responsibility as a school that we have a lot of work to do, and we have uh, things we need to improve upon. And I train all of our principals. I oversee our investigatory process. For all 11 schools, I make sure that we have we have to have a measure of compliance so that everyone's doing it the right way and there's a check and balance. But the what's missing on that is that other part of this work. So when the pandemic hit, we formed a PLC with all of our assistant principals who primarily focus. They're the investigators typically when there's student issues in our schools, um, where it starts with them. We met. We used an anchor text called the second thing I've forgotten here. It's called shifting gears. I think it's called Shifting Gears, and it really looks at how can you look at all of the gears, the cogs in the wheel of a system, right? I can actually pull in some references to Dr. Kendi in some of the work where he talks about examining policy. Uh, this is policy. How we do things is policy. So I think that uh, we've tried to take a deeper dive into that work and look at how can we rethink and rework some of our practices and policies on the front end, but also on the back end. So to say that, I think um, hearing from students and hearing some of those experiences, that's not what we want for our community, for our kids. And um, you brought up a great point around our families who are parents and have to, you know, listen to what their kids have experienced. It's just not um, not what we're about. And uh, we recognize the work that has to happen. So I'll stop there, but.
8: Can I jump in with a question to Numben and Angelina? Now that you're listening to this, this conversation, how, what is your gut response? Like, is this enough? Do you feel good about the steps they're taking or do you want to push further? And, and you know, I'm just curious
4: that it's great and I love what Dr. Hearn said with the healing process after something has happened when like what I mentioned my example before I am lucky to have like support of Dr. Hearn and the support of so many teachers that I trust and that have always supported me and my peers as well and I have had like so many great teachers there for me but I think that accountability is so important with like incidents that people need to be held accountable and also just having those teachable moments where we can use that to teach why that's wrong. Um, And then with just like the healing process. But I think there's always room for improvement, doing everything that we can to make sure that all the families and student of color, like feel comfortable and safe is a priority.
3: Yeah. I also agree with Angelina. I, I definitely think accountability is important and I, Also, I'm very grateful for the support that we've received from the administration and um, some faculty as well. I've had teachers reach out to me telling me, you know, that they would love to help in any way as possible. They didn't know we were going through what we did. So they are very um, helpful in that sense. Also, just like when I came to my principal, who is not Mr. Hannah, who was not Mr. Hannah at the time, but was Mr. Perry with the idea of creating the Diversity Awareness Club. He was so open to it, and, and I was very nervous asking because I heard so many stories where people have gone to other schools that were predominantly white institutions uh, or, or schools themselves, and, and they were denied of that. Or there, there were students who were punished for, for you know, standing up for what they believed in or for not standing for the pledge and just things like that. So being super open and just hearing what we had to say, it, it was such a relief. But just because we've gone somewhere with this does not mean we should stop does not mean we should, uh, we should definitely keep going and continue the work that we are doing because we are already doing so much. We can't just, you know, uh, stop here. Um, just like Mr. Yagir had mentioned, um, once we address a problem, we not only look at um, how to solve it, but what was it from the beginning that allowed for this to happen? What environment did we curate allowing for the student to say this to the student? So I think it should be a, Definitely, it's, it's been overwhelmingly, over, overwhelmingly remarkable, the amount of support we've received. And Dr. Uh, Hearn also had mentioned that when certain issues happen, we, sorry, I just lost my train of thought, but the amount of support that we have received from all the administration, the faculty, is just amazing, but we should not stop here. Um, and uh, Dr. Hern had mentioned, uh, and I think Ms. Dr. Walker Jones also had mentioned that, you know, when we create, when, when there's an issue addressed, what can we do from now uh, so we don't have to have this conversation again every 10 years? Just like he had mentioned, his daughters had gone through the same things that we did. And now, what are the next steps? So I definitely think we should continue because we are doing such good progress. I think there's a lot of conversations happening in our town that they weren't there before. Um, and I think the more work we keep doing with this, the The less the issue will most likely go away, but the more aware people will be about um, the lack of uh, diversity there is in the town, and the more aware, and that we have to be more aware of that.
1: I I'm a nuts and bolts guy. (laughs) Would would it make any sense? And I just throw this out as something you can chew on later. Make any sense that every principal at the beginning of the school year uh, asked to set up a Zoom meeting with all minority religious or ethnic or uh individuals and and have a, a zoom meeting where they can as parents talk to the administration the administration can uh, give guidelines of how to contact the school if they have questions or they would like to uh, put in input uh, or their concern their expectations About uh, the treatment of the children and the educational behavior. And the other thing I would imagine does all administrators and teachers uh, in their contract have an ethical standard of behavior uh, in regard uh, to ethnicity and uh, religious comments? Uh, uh, Does that exist as part of of their uh, behavioral? a part of their contract.
2: Uh, Let me react to that first uh, before uh, others jump into that, and I'm going to react as a parent of color. Uh, Frank, I would resist that particular kind of effort. And here's why. I didn't move into this community to be isolated or to be identified simply as a minority who's living here. I, I moved in this community to become a part of the community and if you're going to do anything uh similar to telling people what the rules are that ought to happen for everyone regardless of what your religion or your ethnicity is here are the rules for everyone who lives in these communities now i must admit that uh, uh, m.j scofield for example when i first moved in the community reached out to me as a parent not as a uh, not as a parent of color but as one of her constituents um, letting me know, hey, welcome to the community. Well, she did that for all of the people who uh, uh, not only did she want your vote <laughs> to run for school committee, uh, but she did that for everyone and stuff that she could identify because she was on the uh, 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 on the newcomers uh, club and you know in Franklin, and therefore she was able to reach out and then let people know I'm you know I'm also a member of the school committee. So I think it's important for all parents. All students to know the rules, but not necessarily to point people out and segregate them or identify them as different, because uh, that sets up a kind of uh, uh, you know sort of a anti-positive feeling, uh, you know, of moving in the community. The other thing too that I'd like to point out is the idea, and I love what the student said about it doesn't make any difference to some degree that your faculty has to be uh, totally diverse, but it does make a difference that you have people who you can identify with on the faculty and, and administration, which also brings me to a piece that I've done in terms of my own personal research, which is called critical mass. You can't have one minority teacher at one at each elementary school and one at the high school and then think, oh, God, you know, we've succeeded here. If we're going to do it then we need to have a critical mass of of persons of color and that sets up a responsibility for the school committee and also for the uh, uh, for the administration to not just get one or two but to look at how are we going to improve uh, our faculty through diversity but at the same time do what the students said make sure that these are qualified people who are coming into our district. And then the final point that I want to make uh, you know because i know we 're uh, we 're getting close on time you, you know the final point that i 'd like to throw out for the group is this you know as as students you 're going to be uh, confronted with these kinds of issues uh throughout your life and throughout your education and professional career I guess Uh, uh, And my question is, uh, first off, let me ask uh, the students who are here, since you're both seniors, where are you going to college next year? And then do you feel prepared to sort of move to that next level, to not only be able to speak up for yourself, but? But to know that as a uh, as a person of color and stuff, I have rights and I can speak truth to power no matter what environment I am. So first, uh, you know, where are you guys going uh, next year uh, for college? Because uh, I'm sure both of you two are headed towards some bright careers.
4: So I'm still undecided on which college I'm going to. I got into I think seven schools, but I'm still waiting on a few more. So I'll have to decide in the next month. But I do know that I'm double majoring in psychology and political science and possibly minoring in gender studies. I just really love the social justice um, stuff. So that's something that I'll continue to pursue in college. And I'm also gonna be a athlete. I'm gonna be running track and cross country in college. Uh, but I feel like I'm prepared and ready to take that next step. I feel that I can really advocate for myself now. I think back to that person I was maybe in middle school. And I never would have thought that I would be speaking out about so many different things and being this very confident person that advocates for myself and advocates for others. So I, I really am excited to go to that next part of my life.
3: Um, and uh, currently I'm also undecided, but I got into uh, quite a few schools as well, but I'm deciding between uh, Howard University, Northeastern and Western New England. I'm not sure where I'll go yet. Those schools are definitely all different. Um, But I want to major in political science and also possibly minor in African-American studies. And the reason I chose poli sci as a major was, you know, now that I've been able to speak out about these issues, I really want to be a part of the policymaking. And uh, I love, I've always, I've never really liked politics, um, but up until like the past few elections, I've been really engaged and I never really realized how people's lives could be so affected by politics. And um, I really want to be a part of that change. I feel like there's so much work I can do in that field and helping continuing uh, advocate the things that I advocate for. And I definitely think I'm prepared. When I was literally like in uh, elementary, middle school, I hated the color of my skin. I didn't, you know, wasn't comfortable in my skin. And I feel like from learning about myself my culture and you know uh the melanin i've been blessed with i i really learned how special i am and how important i am just just to me and i've really built built a lot of self-confidence um and like angelina said i can advocate for myself and i can speak up for myself i'm so confident i will you know, just all I know is I'm just going to go to college, get my degree. I'll have some fun, but I'm there just to get an education, just like everyone else. So, um, my race won't hold me back. Of course, I definitely know how to deal with situations head on now. Um, but I'm definitely not the person I was uh, five or six years ago when I was, you know, beaten down and thought that I couldn't be pretty unless I was white. So, I definitely think that going into college, um, I am going to be very confident in, in what I do and. That's what's gonna help me succeed. Um, that confidence that I've gained is gonna help me succeed and, and uh, achieve the things that
6: I want to achieve. In Numbe, I hope you understand that politics is and can be a good thing.
3: Mm-hmm. Uh,
6: you are engaged this morning in a political discussion and you are part of your government and you can change the world. And I would indeed say you've already done that in your short number of years that you've been on this earth. And I hope you don't stop. Politics is, is a great opportunity uh, to engage in discussions like this. Uh, America is a government of the people, by the people and for the people. And I always tell them, if you don't like what your government is doing, go home and look in the mirror because that is your government. You are your government. And I'm so delighted that uh, you folks have stepped up at an early age and uh, gives me great hope for the future. Please don't run against me anytime soon. Uh, go out and get your college degree, go get your master's degree, go get a doctorate, and uh, <laughs> then, uh, then I'll be 70 and I'll be uh, willing to move along. Good luck to you both. Um, I am anxious to hear where you do end up, so please uh, keep in touch. Oh,
10: thank you, thank you. I just wanted to say just on a personal note for, for Numbe and Angelina, just listening to you just now, I'm in awe um i I really wish at your age, I was that confident and strong, and I look back to all that I've missed out on and lost because I didn't have that so you you guys are really doing a great job um and I know that your families are very proud of you, and you guys will go so very far i just I, I guess I just wanted to say um you know after viewing the round table discussion um that Kobe and Numbe facilitated and just listening today, there really is a a need for these discussions in our town, in our district, and there's a lot of work that needs to be done. I believe that through the Diversity Equity Inclusion Committee, through our upcoming equity audit, we're we're moving in the right direction. And I know that as we've discussed in, in this podcast and in the last one, Marathon, not a sprint. Um, how can we achieve the change we need? I think that we're taking the right steps, and I'm I'm proud of what, what what we've accomplished so far.
9: I think that the enemy of progress in Franklin has not been a hate from the majority of residents or from leadership, but rather it's been a lack of urgency uh, for change. And it's, it's been very easy. I mean, growing up, right. It's very easy to hear a joke that's off and not recognize the impacts that it has on others. And, you know, it doesn't have that much impact on me. So I can, I can think to myself, Oh, that was, that was unnecessary, but you know, I don't need to rock the boat. We don't need to, and that, that has been the culture in Franklin, right. It's, it Again, it's not been this like uh, dominant hate. It's been a, a Just it's like, oh, let's not change anything too much. And that comes from a a place of privilege. And I think what the roundtable was looking to do and what these conversations are are looking to do is is to show there are people that are being uh, actively, negatively impacted by these comments, by the lack of calling out. And I want to touch upon one thing that uh, Mr. Jagir touched on quickly, which I think is hugely important, which is uh, trainings around microaggressions for teachers, right? When there are comments that come up, what, what the, the role of teachers is not only in the curriculum, but they're also our ears on the ground, right? They're uh, around these conversations as they happen amongst students, and I, I think a lot of what we've seen and what uh, students were were talking about is things happening that teachers probably heard and found it safer, easier to just say, you know, to just act as though they didn't hear here and and training the first training of, of that microaggression training the first slide if, if I remember was notifying the moment calling out the moment right just identifying it hey something just happened we need to stop and, and make it clear that that's not going to be uh, okay and I think that gets to, to a lot of, of what you were saying uh, dr Walker Jones and that to to change the culture as a whole we need to make it clear every single time something comes up hey that's not allowed that's not allowed that's not allowed because it it's going to be easy to not do that. And then in that, in that silence, all you hear are those comments. And that has a lot of damage on uh, our young students of color. And I think uh, that's what we've been hearing
1: uh, from the round table and in conversations like these. I need to thank all of our guests, Angelina Perez, Noombe Noy. We, <laughs> we want to thank Denise Spencer from the school committee. We want to thank Kobe from Jillo from the town council. We'd like to thank uh, Dr. Sarah Ahern, uh, Franklin Public School superintendent, and another name, Lucas Guerrero, the assistant principal. And I really appreciate you coming on the air. And uh, I, I hope our pause will run again and uh, we'll have another opportunity. So PJ, would you like to wrap up this program
0: I would say this, however subtle, the ripples of racism, however small they may be, but when those ripples aggregate, they become tsunamis of hatred. We need to understand that it can start small and permitted it can be allowed to grow. As we record this program, we are in the midst of the George Floyd trial. We are in the midst of a giant wave, a tsunami of AAPI hatred. We're in the midst of a pandemic. Somewhere in the midst of the future, if you're listening, know this. The march began in Washington in 1963. We march forward from Washington. We march forward from the Edmund Pettus Bridge. The question is, how do you make that march your personal walk toward a more perfect union? Thank you for listening. If you have a comment, we'd love to hear from you. You can contact us at info at franklin.tv. I'm Peter J. this is Franklin Public Radio.